0: We shall send to the moon, 240,000 miles away, a giant rocket, more than 300 feet tall, on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body, and then return it safely to Earth. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? 535 years ago, fly the Atlantic. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Everybody. My name is Shauna, and this is the American English Podcast. My goal here is to teach you the English spoken in the United States. Through common expressions, pronunciation tips, and interesting cultural snippets or stories, I hope to keep this fun, useful, and interesting. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. In that introduction, you heard President John F. Kennedy expressing his commitment to land on the moon by the end of the 1960s. I'll post the link to the full speech within the transcript. As you probably know, John F. Kennedy's or JFK's mission was a success. Or if you're a conspiracy theorist, maybe you think no man nor woman has ever landed on the moon. To each his own, in this lesson, we're going to be talking about what it was like to be one of the first astronauts in space, as well as NASA's achievements in space exploration. But before we begin, we're going to do some English exercises. As always, let's go ahead and start with a joke. Question, what do aliens eat on? Do you know? Flying saucers. (laughs) Get it? This is such a simple joke, but you need to know two vocab terms in order to understand it. A flying saucer is that disc-shaped quintessential aircraft flown by aliens, probably the ones you've seen in pictures when people claim they've seen UFOs or unidentified flying objects. Usually they show images of flying saucers. A saucer is also the little plate that you put underneath a cup of tea. A saucer usually has an indentation for the bottom of the cup so that it doesn't spill when you move the cup from one place to another. All right, so one more time. What do aliens eat on? Flying saucers, right? Because they eat on flying saucers inside the vehicle and maybe on these little tiny plates. (laughs) All right, today's expression is it's not rocket science. Definitions of the words first. It's. It's is a contraction of it and is. Not. Not is used with an auxiliary verb to create the negative. I'm not German. I'm not male. I'm not short, right? I'm American. I'm a female and I'm tall. Um, Rocket. Rocket is a synonym for missile, right? It's a cylindrical object or vehicle That can be propelled to great heights. Astronauts take rockets to outer space. My brother and his friends used to make bottle rockets and launch them in the park when they were younger. Science. Science is the intellectual and systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. And once again, the expression is it's not rocket science. I have a feeling you can guess the meaning of this one. It means it's not difficult, it's not challenging. We commonly use it when someone thinks something is going to be challenging and we kind of want to express that it's not going to be as difficult as they think. We almost always use this expression in the negative form, so it's not rocket science. Origin of the expression? Well, after World War II, the US developed a long-term plan for space development, which we're going to talk about today, and took experts from Germany who displayed expertise during the war. By the 1950s, the general public understood that being a rocket scientist meant needing to understand sophisticated technology and much more. So, examples of how to use this expression. Example number one, imagine you're trying to screw in a light bulb and can't do it. You think to yourself, good God, this isn't rocket science. This isn't something difficult. It's not a challenging task. Why can't I do this? All right, example number two, when I lived in Berlin, my Danish roommate used to make bread every morning and it tasted amazing. I was determined to learn how to make it. And before she walked me through the step-by-step process of how to make it, she claimed it was not as difficult as I made it out to be. She told me it really isn't rocket science. To make a long story short, she was telling the truth. It wasn't rocket science. Her recipe is fail-proof and I still use it today. Example number three, imagine you're back in high school and you have a very bad math teacher. He doesn't explain things well. Most days when you come home, you're very frustrated because you can't complete the homework assignments on your own. So you decide to ask him for extra help. After he finishes re-explaining everything, mind you, very poorly and very unclearly, he says, hey, this is not rocket science. This is not brain surgery. It's not supposed to be super complicated. As you walk away from the classroom, you think to yourself, hmm, well, maybe math isn't rocket science, but trying to understand the teacher is. Small note on this last one. In British English and Australian English, the subject is called maths with an S. In American English, you will never see an S on math. I like math, not maths, right? You'll only see an S in the full form of math, Which is mathematics. Let's go ahead and do a listen and repeat exercise. We'll use the phrase, he thinks it isn't rocket science. Repeat after me. He. He thinks. He thinks it. He thinks it isn't. He thinks it isn't rocket. He thinks it isn't rocket science. 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 science. Okay, now let's go ahead and do the conjugation. I don't think it's rocket science. You don't think it's rocket science. She doesn't think it's rocket science. He doesn't think it's rocket science. We don't think it's rocket science. They don't think it's rocket science. It isn't or it's not rocket science. All right, on to the fact of the day. NASA is a government-funded agency of the U.S. that stands for National Aeronautics and Space Administration, Americans are pretty proud of it, mainly because of the achievements they've had in space research, robotic spaceflight, and human space exploration. They're probably actually most well-known for sending the first manned flight to space in 1961 and landing the first three men on the moon in 1969. In today's fact of the day, we're going to talk about the events that led up to the Apollo 11 landing on the moon and how space travel has progressed since then. So let's flash back to 1957. Russia launched the first artificial satellite to space called Sputnik 1. It was a space achievement like no other before it, and it helped teach scientists about the density of the upper atmosphere. It proved that from a low orbit, radio signals could be picked up from Earth. Sputnik was angled at a 65 degree angle, enabling it to orbit almost all of the Earth's surface. To orbit means to take a curved path around a planet or star. Planets orbit the sun, for example. Orbiting the Earth, as you can imagine, (laughs) is the sort of advancement that can give one country a huge advantage over another. So the U.S. panicked. They didn't want Russia to have more power than them. The U.S. and Russia weren't good friends at the time. They were actually fierce competitors in this sort of ongoing political war. And so this led to what we call the space race, a competitive battle between the U.S. and Russia to better themselves at space exploration. And that's when NASA was created. So NASA admits that the organization was, quote, forged in response to early Soviet space achievements. In any case, shortly after it was created in 1961, Kennedy gave his famous We're Going to the Moon speech, in which he challenged the U.S. to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. I encourage you to listen to the full speech. It's not too long, it's not too difficult, and it's very, very well written. What were the first NASA space flights like? What were astronauts' first impressions? Well, in response to the question, what does the moon look like from 60 miles away, Anders, one of the first men to get close to the moon, said, Like dirty beach sand with lots of footprints in it. We came all this way to explore the moon, and the most important thing is that we discovered the Earth. Lavelle, another astronaut with him, commented, The vast loneliness up here of the moon is awe-inspiring. And it makes you realize just what you have back there on Earth, right? And something that is awe-inspiring makes you amazed. Eight years after Kennedy's speech, Apollo 11 successfully made a lunar landing or a moon landing with Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. I'm sure you're probably familiar with the character Buzz Lightyear from the Pixar movie Toy Story, his name was, in fact, inspired by Buzz Aldrin, the second man to land on the moon. Good thing, because um, if it hadn't been for the change of name, Buzz Lightyear would have been called Lunar Larry. Just kind of lame. But what did these astronauts do when they got to space? Stop and think about what you would do if you went to the moon for the first time. It's kind of crazy to think about, Right. Well, the first thing that these astronauts did was they took the first step on the moon. Neil Armstrong was actually the first, and that step made history. You might be familiar with his statement, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. After that, they collected tubes of the moon's surface and also some lunar rocks, and they conducted experiments Uh, They did a solar wind composition test to check out how the Earth's magnetic fields affect solar wind particles arriving on the moon. (laughs) They did a laser ranging retroflector test, which apparently measures the distance between places on the moon and places on Earth. They did also a passive seismic experiment, which is a test to see if uh, the moon has earthquakes, and it turns out uh, the er the moon does have earthquakes. It also helps scientists kind of recognize what is going on inside of the moon, so what its internal structure is like. These astronauts spent a total of about two hours and 15 minutes doing these things, and then they got back into their lunar module, slept, and ate. So this is what I find interesting. According to time.com, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were the first men to eat on the moon. (laughs) And quote, when they consumed ham salad sandwiches, rehydratable beverages, and fortified fruit strips. So what does that mean? Ham salad sandwiches, when we say ham salad or chicken salad, usually it's sliced up meat with mayonnaise. Rehydratable beverages, I'm assuming are, you know, powdered drinks that you add water to. And fortified fruit strips, I have a feeling are probably just fruit snacks. <laughs> In any case, before Apollo 11, the food was much worse. According to one of NASA's space food systems laboratory managers, Vicki Chloris, initial voyages into space introduced questions scientists had never before considered. Could an astronaut swallow food in zero gravity? Would he choke? Would crumbs float into the shuttle's instruments and break something? In the first missions, they tried to keep it simple, and they ate a lot of pureed food inside of tubes. It was like serving them baby food inside of a toothpaste container, she said. NASA has come a long way since these first flights. Since then, they've had some great achievements. For example, they made the Hubble Telescope, which wasn't the first, but uh, it provided very high-resolution images from space. Even if you're interested, you can go onto their website and check out what's in the sky above you right now. NASA has also been a supporter and active member in the International Space Station Project, which collaborates with the space agencies in Russia, Japan, Europe, and Canada. And that is a 32 year long project. It went up in 1998 and should still be there around 2030. And that's purpose is kind of a long term research station for biologists, astronomers, space medicine, people that are interested in physics and so many other different fields. What are we going to see in the future? NASA's current big project is called Orion. And it's a joint effort headed by the European Space Agency and NASA, of course. Orion is a spacecraft, also known as a space vehicle or a space capsule, to transport humans to the moon and Mars. The thing's about 11 to 16 feet wide. And it actually has even airbags on it so that it can land in water if necessary. So what else is coming in the future? NASA plans to send a woman to the moon by the year 2020 in a mission called Artemis, which is very fitting, right? Artemis is the sister of Apollo, and Apollo was the first mission to the moon. By the year 2024, NASA hopes to have a permanent location on the moon to continue research there and use it as a starting point to travel to Mars. Pretty crazy, right? All right. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. And once again, uh, if you go to the website, AmericanEnglishPodcast.com, you'll have access to all of the transcripts, which really can help you if you really want to improve your English. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American English Podcast. Remember... It's my goal here to not only help you improve your listening comprehension, but to show you how to speak like someone from the States. If you want to receive the full transcript for this episode, or you just want to support this podcast, make sure to sign up to premium content on AmericanEnglishPodcast.com. Thanks and hope to see you soon.